Our loving Father, uh, we thank you that we can gather this morning and come under your word. Uh, We thank you for these ideas that were world-changing. We pray that as we think about grace alone, that you would change us. Uh, We pray that your word would bring us low and humble us. We pray that your word would lift us up in the knowledge of your great love for us in Jesus. We ask this blessing in his precious name. Amen. Please be seated. Checked out. Fell off the perch. Headed south. Had the last dance. Lost. Lucked out. Gone. Closed the curtains. Departed. Resting. Passed. Belly up. Bought the farm. Ceased to exist. No longer. Pushing up the daisies. Kicked the bucket. Joined the choir. What am I talking about? Death. We're talking about death. These are euphemisms, phrases that try and soften death and even cushion death, which makes the words of Ephesians here even harder to swallow because there's no cushion for us. It says the spiritually dead are objects of God's wrath. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2 as uh, we open up Ephesians. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now Paul says at one stage, the spiritual condition of these people before God is death and wrath. Once we were spiritually dead before God. What makes someone spiritually dead? Now, why my friends and my family, though they're physically healthy and mentally alert, why are they described so ruthlessly as dead? Well, it's the seriousness of those two words. Verse 1, do you see the two words there? The first word is transgression, and the other word is sin. Uh, a transgression is to cross a boundary. It's to make a false step. It's to enter into a place where you do not belong. To enter into what otherwise might be enemy territory. It's to cross over into territory that God prohibits. It's to ignore God's word that says don't go there. It won't go well for you if you do. And what about sin? Well, sin was originally an archery term It just simply means to miss the mark or to fall short. Is sin a big deal? 
Well, Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, Your sins have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. So yeah, it's serious. And humanity have trespassed, entered enemy territory and missed the mark consistently since the days of Adam. Humanity has lived as God's people who do not know God and who do not want to know God. And so they ignore God and they remain spiritually dead. And it's a very hard thing to talk about because I have family and very dear friends who are in this state. They live without any reference to their creator. And it's the way of the world where God is not in the frame, where people instead live for the present, the here and now. We live for the earthly, the job, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, the sporting glory, the farm, the children, the children or the children, the weekend or the money. And all I can see are the wants and the needs of life and what's in front of me. And ultimately, according to Paul, this is to play into Satan's hands, the devil, as he is the ruler of the kingdom of the air, whose spirit is at work in the disobedient. Verse 3 says, all of us, we are all in the same boat. We've all lived like this. And so here is humanity standing in the dock and God is the judge and the gable falls and he declares guilty. Humanity is in a terrible danger of facing a terrible end. Our sinful nature because we're easygoing Aussies, we just think we can look after ourselves. We think, oh, she'll be right. What's the problem? She'll be right. But here we see how expensive and serious sin is. It is the most expensive thing in the world. That our sin, our trespass, uh, when we miss the mark, if we carried ourselves, will cost us in the life of the world to come. And so God's wrath is real. It is not blind and vindictive rage. God's wrath is not an irrational tanty where he just spits the dummy. God's wrath is slow and settled and fixed and pure and holy and certain and right. And as we see these verses, the spiritually dead are objects of God's wrath. We are beggars. We are not worthy to gather up the crumbs from under his table. Sound familiar? So what is the answer? What's the answer to this problem, this dilemma? Uh, is the answer that we should try harder? God is angry, so we just need to do better, better. Or do we pay your penance? Is that the answer? We heard a bit about that last week. Uh, should we pray more? Should we church more? Should we confess more? Should we get baptised? Uh, should we join the choir? Uh, or more hours at Rotary or MU or CWA? Should we do more charitable works, more serving, more good deeds, more do, do, do? Is that the answer to our dilemma? Because if that is the answer, if it's about you being a good bloke, how good is good enough? Where does it end? 
Of course, the testimony of the scriptures is that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. There is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. Ponder that thought for a moment. It's important you understand that because God, as you think about that, know also here in the scriptures, we are told that God loves us too much to leave us as we are. Here is the scandal of the gospel. Here is the scandal of the reformation. Here is the news that was buried for so long in the dark ages and that now shone brightly over Europe and changed the world. Look at verse 4. Here is the news. You ready? The, the, the great ray of light. Verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Do you see that? Is that striking? Uh, the only reason that we are spiritually not dead but alive is because God did something. God breathes spiritual life into these people at Ephesus, this church family. It's like God struck a match and he sets their hearts, uh, their souls aflame. And it is all of his work, all of his grace, such as his love. Once they were a spiritual corpse, but God in his mercy has moved them from death to life. It is done. And so for the, the Christians in Ephesus, it's not do, 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 or pay, 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 or try harder, work harder. The answer is it's done. It is done. And here again is why the Reformation is a thing. It's why the gospel is a thing. Because the news of God's love, God's riches, and God's initiative in Jesus it's no longer hidden. It's no longer hidden, but it's openly declared. Now, you'll remember those TV ads, you know, but wait, there's more. Yeah, free set of steak knives, but wait, there's more. Well, th this is what happens here in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 6, but wait, there's more. Not only has God acted, he continues to act. Verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now just check the direction God sends you for a minute there. Does God send you down or does he send you up? What way? Up. It's not down. So what we heard last week about, about purgatory? No. No, no. Those in Christ are not sent down to some place like that. We are sent up. He doesn't send us to purgatory to work off our sins. It's not biblical. The contrast is, the contrast of the gospel is that he raises us up to heaven. How can we be sure that God will do that? Well, look at chapter 1, verse 20. 
It talks about God where he exerted, he raised Christ from the dead and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And what is the Christian experience here in chapter 2, verse 6? It's the same thing. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Everything God does for Jesus, he guarantees for us. He does for us. Not only does he raise us from death to life, he raises us to, he raises us to heaven. See, your experience, your union with Christ is such that just as surely as Jesus died for your sins, you died. And just as surely as God raised Christ, you were raised in resurrection. Romans 6 is very good on that. This treasure, this blessing is ours now because you belong to Christ. Can you see the change? We are led from Adam to Christ. We are led from the deepest hell to heaven itself. And immortality is ours. Heaven and God's glory are ours. Nothing in this world compares to the riches of the life to come. Nothing. And what does God say about that? He says that the riches are in incomparable. They're incomparable, these riches that are, are before us. And so for those in Christ, God has delivered us from death to life. He has moved us from wrath to rescue, which means for the believer, for the Christian, we're no longer spiritually dead objects of wrath. No, in Christ Jesus, we are spiritually, we're spiritually alive, objects of grace. We are objects of grace. On what basis are we saved? Look at verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Do you, see, do you see the answer there? On what basis are we saved? Do we contribute anything? Does it say, for it is by baptism you are saved? No, it doesn't say that. Does it say, for it is by communion that you are saved? No, it doesn't say that. Does it say, uh, for... For it is by going to Bible study that you are saved. No, it doesn't say that. Does it say, for it is by being a Catholic you are saved? Or by being Anglican? Or Presbyterian? Or even Independent? Does it say, for it is by being a white Anglo-Saxon middle-class national voting Inverellian that you are saved? No, it doesn't say that. What do we contribute to our salvation? Look again at verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from you, it is the gift of God. This grace here is the gift of God. It is all of him, all of his generosity, all of his riches. It's not the property of an institution that can be dispensed, bought or sold, just to be sure. Sometimes people talk about grace like that. We're not talking about that. Absolutely. This is the gift of God. It is the gift of salvation. 
that he gives us in the finished work of Christ. You could go grace equals Jesus, if you like, if that's helpful. It is the finished work of Christ alone that saves us. Christ who died for me, Christ who died as me, who now Christ lives in me and he lives through me. And if we understand Ephesians, we'll know that that's an honour that I do not deserve and I cannot earn. But it comes completely, dependently on God as a gift of grace in Jesus. This is grace that though I am a great sinner, I have an even greater saviour. And it should be the best news ever to come to our ears. See, how might we describe grace? There's so many examples. Uh, is it, maybe you've heard these. Is it like the debt or a big mortgage and someone comes and pays it off for you? Is that grace? Is it like an infringement notice? Not that I've ever had one, all right? <laughs> or, or two. Or th- anyway, is it like getting uh, a fine? A, you owe a penalty, but someone comes and pays the penalty for you. Or is it someone who takes the blame for you? Or the adopted child, this is a nice picture where the adopted child is welcomed unconditionally into a loving family. Is that what grace is like? Is it like getting a place maybe on a premiership winning football team having never played a game but you get the trophy anyway? Or is it an extension of outrageous forgiveness despite deep personal costs? Is that that what grace is? A gift that we don't deserve. Maybe grace is like this. Maybe grace is like this. Maybe it's like following the ways of the world and giving in to the ways of the devil and gratifying the desires of the mind and the body and being a stranger to God and being without hope. And then, then what happens is God. God, he tells you that he loves you. Can you imagine that? And it's like he strikes a match and it blazes in your heart and he makes you alive to him. And he raises you, he lifts you up in Christ and he points you to his son and he says, look at my son, I love him too and I'm going to treat him the way I'm going to treat you the way I treated him. I'm going to, just as I raised him, I'll raise you too. And then God gives you this eternal status that is incomprehensibly good and he guarantees a seat for you in heaven at his table forever. Is that grace? That's something else, isn't it? Is that your story? When someone asks you, have you been, when were you first touched by God's grace, is this your answer? That I was rescued from the depths of hell and given a seat in the throne room of heaven, all because of Jesus. Grace is God's unconditional love that though I am a great sinner, I have a greater King and Saviour. And the encouragement is, if we keep reading, 
that we must respond to this finished work by faith. Did you see verse 10? For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Grace first, works follow. Does grace mean I can run off and now live how I please? Are we going to be like the the libertines? And the answer, of course, is no. Why would you go back to the very thing from which you've been saved? We need to look at the cross and see how expensive sin is. We can't come to the cross and think that sin doesn't matter. Because that's just cheap grace. We are not saved for nothing. We are saved. We are not saved so that now we are free to be indifferent and apathetic and of no use. We are not saved for nothing. We are saved for something. When we're saved to serve, not to serve sin, but the conqueror of sin, our Lord Jesus. Titus chapter 2 is really helpful here. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says this. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us, what does the grace of God do? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives In this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do his work, work God has prepared in advance for us to do, such is our response to his grace. So do we understand grace? If you do, it's a joy, and if you don't, it's drab And if it's drab, maybe it's because God is yet to strike a match and set your heart ablaze. God wants to breathe spiritual new life into those who are spiritually dead. He wants us to know the greater riches of the world to come. And he wants us to be not objects of wrath, but objects of love. People who have been rescued and subjects of his grace. And so here is the story. I'm a great sinner, and so are you, but we have an even greater saviour, and that is grace, and grace should change everything. Amen.